Sanskrit proverb that Prabhupada used to quote that goes, Ahara nidra bhayamaitunang cha samanyame tat pasupinaranam dharmehi teshang adiko vishesho dharmena hina pasupi samana. This verse gives the essential distinction between human life and animal life. Of course, there's no disrespect intended for animals. But this verse states that um, ahara, eating, nidra, sleeping, ahara nidra bhaya, which means sort of, it's translated defending, kind of like dealing with danger. And maitunancha, uh, and, uh, and sexuality. Interestingly, and just I'll throw this in, in terms of gender issues, uh, the real Vedic culture does not put one gender over the other or blame one gender. It's like it's not about the seductress or it's not about the lusty caveman, you know, clubs the woman submission, drags her by the hair into his cave. Because, I mean, the evidence that the Vedic culture recognized this is that the word for sexuality, mitunam or maitunya, literally means mutuality. It literally means mutual. In fact, our English word mutual is cognate with historic by historical linguistics related to the Sanskrit mita. Mitaha means mutual. You can see their words are related. Mita mutual. So maitunya sexuality literally means mutuality. So therefore, uh, yeah, it's not a chauvinist culture. So ahara nidra bhayamaitunancha, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, as Prabhupada used to put it. Samanyam etat pashubi naranam. Samanya, also cognate, means the sameness. This is the sameness, or the equality, literally, uh, of human beings with animals. Pashubi saman naranam. Literally, this is the sameness or the equality of human beings with animals. And then it said, Dharmehi teshang adiko bishesho. But the specific, I'm, I'm translating very literally here. This, indeed, the specific superiority of human beings lies in dharma. Lies in the ability to consciously pursue virtue. Dharmehi teshang adiko bishesho. Therefore, dharmena hina, human beings that are bereft of dharma, pashubi samana, they're equal to animals. I mean, it's very simple logic that human beings, animals are the same in that they all eat, sleep, defend themselves and mate. That's all the same. But in one sense, human beings are superior. In one sense, that they can consciously pursue higher truth and virtue. And therefore, if a human being lacks that, then it just goes back to the default situation, which is animals. You know, human beings are animals are the same. If there's only one way in which you're better than these people and you lose that one quality, then you merge back into the pack. That's the basic argument. So, um, so I'm going to talk about that. 
how does one, in a sense, discover one's, how does one discover one's humanity, you could say? Because I think discovering one's humanity is a really important step toward discovering true spirituality. And people who take on religious customs and without really discovering their humanity are great candidates for hypocrisy. So I think one of the ways in which one discovers one's humanity, apart from, let's say, someone may just have natural empathy. Some people are just born nice, you know, and they, they care about other people, but, but also some, you know, some kittens care about other kittens and things. So I, I think one important development in life, which leads one to really discover their humanity in a higher sense, is... Uh, philosophical inquiry. And by that, I do not mean the type of insufferable, technical, and often trivial philosophizing that goes on in modern university departments, uh, which is just kind of, I mean, I mean it's funny. When I, I once, several years ago, spoke at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and the room where I was speaking happened to be next to the department office for the philosophy department and on the door they had this you know they had different announcements they had one thing which was i thought amazing it was a transcript of the remarks of the department chairman university of colorado philosophy department to the families of graduating philosophy majors and his whole talk was trying to convince the parents that they have not wasted their money <laughs> paying for the child to study a useless subject. And it was kind of like, no, with, a, with an undergraduate philosophy degree, you can, it's really good preparation for law school where you can get a real job. <laughs> or you could be this or you could be that. So it's interesting because if you study Western history, Western intellectual history, uh, there was a time not too long ago, a few centuries ago, at my age, that seems like, just the other day. There was a time when philosophers, I mean the good ones, were rock stars. Now, of course, we've moved on to more intelligent people that are rock stars. Just kidding. But... There was a time when philosophers were celebrities. They were important people in society. And now, of course, I mean, how many people can name one living philosopher? Exactly the point. Was it? <laughs> Actually, Dawkins is not a philosopher. Yeah, it's, it's like that clown that writes those atheism books. No, <laughs> Chomsky. Well, he's actually, that, that's the problem. He's also not a philosopher. He's a linguist. Not really. He's a self-help, feel-better. No, see, take Dawkins, for example. Dawkins breaks the first rule of scholarship, which is that he speaks outside his area of expertise. Dawkins has no academic training in history of religions, philosophy of religions, religious philosophy, theology, sociology of religion. He has no 
academic credentials in any topic, any field related to his clownish remarks. He's actually trained in, you know, evolutionary biology or something. So it's like someone saying, well, because I believe in Krishna, I can speak about microbiology or something. I mean, it's, that's dumb. So he breaks the first rule of scholarship. He's a total amateur. And when he speaks about religion, it's obvious he knows virtually nothing about the history of religion, sociology of religion. He knows virtually nothing about the There's even a field in philosophy called um, philosophy of religion, which is not the same as religious philosophy. The philosophy of religion is an academic field in which philosophers uh, discuss and, and, and study um, different philosophical arguments for and against the major components of religion theology such as God, the soul, and they give, and, and in the philosophy of religion, which is very different from theology, uh, one cannot quote a scripture as an authority. I mean, you can't do that, that people would just laugh at you because it's philosophy, you have to give cogent arguments which stand on their own logical force in favor, for or against God, the soul, and so on. So he has no credentials in any related field. He's speaking as a total amateur. And virtually the entire academic community in related fields, they know that he's, you know, he's, he's very silly. He's not taken seriously because he has no idea what he's talking about. So anyway, but the point I was trying to make is that um, why... Are, why have philosophers lost so much social prestige? I think they self-destructed. In the Puranas, this ancient genre of Sanskrit literature, you get these stories where some demon will throw a weapon, and if the weapon doesn't destroy its object, the weapon comes back and destroys the person that threw the weapon. So around 1920, roughly, there was something called the Circle of Vienna. And the Circle of Vienna was a group of European philosophers, because back then, basically, up until World War I, and even by then, I mean, still, Europe completely dominated the world academically, financially, technologically. America as a leading country, that's sort of post-World War II. But in any case, they have the Circle of Vienna where these leading philosophers formally decided to sort of declare war on metaphysics. Now, metaphysics is a term introduced by Aristotle. The Greek meta means above or after. And so there's physics, which just meant, you know, basically the study of this world, studying the material world. And then if you wanted to study things beyond the physical world, that's called metaphysics. And that would include things like God, the soul, and even include things like values. It's very easy to demonstrate logically that a, a purely empirical science logically can never give a complete description of reality. Because if we look at our lives, uh, it's clear that that which most 
inspires us, motivates us, uh, that which is most important in our life is not physical at all, it's metaphysical. For example, love. You know, loving parents, for example, will, if necessary, give their lives for their children because of that love. Now, their life is just a physical thing, but that value, that love, love is not a, you, there's no physical object, which is love. Like, give me five loves, you know, two yellow, maybe an orange, <laughs> two blues. There, there, there's no physical object, which is love. And all the neurology in the world, like when you feel love, this is what's going on in your brain, you know, this is firing and that, that that's, that's still not love. It's just like, for example, uh, light, the light that, let's say, comes out of a light bulb. It would be quite clueless to say that light bulbs create light or that electrical wires create light. In fact, they conduct light. Electrical wire and a light bulb conduct light. They don't create it. The body conducts consciousness. The body itself, I mean, the body doesn't produce consciousness, it conducts it. And to become pure and self-realized basically means, you know, stop being a semiconductor. (laughs) You know, and just let all the consciousness come through. So, love, compassion, justice, for example, to give you an example of something eminently... uh, metaphysical, something which has absolutely no empirical basis and yet is the foundation of our entire political, judicial, and moral system, equality. Equality. Every conceivable empirical test that you could apply to human beings will tell you that we're not equal. It is empirical nonsense in the literal sense. It makes no sense. It is literal nonsense to say that we are equal. We can't all run the same speed. We're not all equally musical. We can't all solve math problems at this, you know. Every possible human test will show that we're not equal. And yet, we disregard all of the empirical evidence and construct a political, a judicial system based on a purely metaphysical assumption. Now, could you please mention that again? Okay. I'm sorry for international because English is not perfect. No, no problem. That'll there's a little surcharge, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I, I get some more pistachio nuts. So we. Well, let, let, me, let me explain it this way. Let's go to the DOI, Declaration of Independence, by Bhakta Tom. <laughs> One of the early American members of the Hare Krishna movement, Thomas Jefferson. He, he, didn't, he was Krishna West. He didn't wear tilak. <laughs> at, at, at the Constitutional Convention. Anyway... So Thomas Jefferson was very smart. Apparently Kennedy, John Kennedy, once he hosted a dinner of Nobel laureates at the White House, and he said, this is the greatest 
assembly of, of learning at a White House dinner since the time when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> so you know, he was very smart. And he knew his philosophy. Because, for example, the time of Jefferson, one of the prominent philosophers was David Hume, the Scottish skeptic. And Hume, among other things, in his sort of, his, his, uh, sort of rampaging skepticism, Hume made the point that you cannot derive a metaphysical fact from a physical fact. In other words, let's say someone commits an obvious act. Are you following? Yes, I'm trying my best. Okay. Anyway, you can, uh, for a ridiculously low price, you can buy a copy of this recording. <laughs> Access being posted free on the internet. So, um, but wait. Call today, and I'll include yesterday's class <laughs> and a vegetable cutter. So, <laughs> so Jefferson begins a Declaration of Independence. Let's look at it because if you just read the first line or two of the Declaration of Independence, it's like a course. It's like an introductory course in philosophy. So I give you an example, like let's say David Hume, let, let, let's say you, you see someone commit an obvious act of injustice, like someone, let's say, killing an innocent child. And let's remove any possible philosophical complexity. Like in philosophy classes in college, they'll say, well, what if, um, like here's an example, this was actually given at a Harvard, popular Harvard class in, in moral philosophy. Let's say you're standing on a train bridge. You're on a bridge and a train's going by. And you see that just past you on the track, a, 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 your bridge over the train, that you know the, the, the track has somehow caved in or something. And the train's going to go over a cliff and hundreds and hundreds of innocent people, including many children, are going to die. Now, the train is coming. And next to you, on the bridge you're standing on is a very fat man. And if you push him off the bridge onto the train track, he will die, but he will stop the train. <laughs> now, now, if you don't push him off to his death, hundreds of people will die. So do you essentially murder this person to save hundreds of lives or say, no, I can't kill him, but then hundreds of people die when you could have prevented it? The answer is tough decision. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, you know, we could talk about it and you can kind of predict based on people's psychological inclinations. Some people say, push the guy. Some people say, no, you can't. So, but in any case, all I mean to say is you can problematize what otherwise would be a simple decision. Like if you just say, should we push people off bridges and kill them? You know, no, we, of course we should. <laughs> but what if by doing so we save hundreds of innocent lives? Well, then it's more difficult. Therefore, I'm saying, let's say someone kills an innocent person and there are no extenuating circumstances. 
the killer is not saving other lives, or maybe even the world's going to blow up. And you could even say that unless I push this person off the bridge, if the train goes through, you know, one of the people on the train who will die has a, 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 a you know, the code to stop a computer from blowing up the world and starting a nuclear war. I mean, you could really get into this. And you could say, I'm going to save, you know, billions of lives by pushing the fat men off the bridge. So let's say, so let's say there's no such circumstances for no good reason someone just killed an innocent person. See, in philosophy, you learn to be very fussy about these things. Someone just killed an innocent person for no good reason. Now, if you study that action, that murder, materially, for example, you could do forensic study. You could find out exactly, you know, how you pushed something, let's say someone pushed someone off a bridge, and you could prove because you have fingerprints, you could describe the angle at which the person fell. You could, but any imaginable empirical investigation of that murder will not reveal the evil of it because the evil of that act is not a physical object. It's not a physical object. And therefore, no empirical study of that action can prove or demonstrate that the act was evil. It's a very interesting point. So therefore, Hume is saying that people, and Kant, of course, said that, he's famous for saying that, who came right after Hume, he said, Hume woke the philosophers up from our slumber. Because we were kind of like, everyone agreed, yeah, that's right, that's right. When Hume started challenging everything, people had to sort of start thinking again. And they, of course, they, they gave arguments against Hume, but at least they had to wake up. So the point is, how do you, how do you know it's evil? I mean, consider, for example, a democratic government in which it is a secular democracy. That means separation of church and state. How do you prove that murder or rape or anything like that is evil or wrong because there's no empirical evidence it's wrong? Yes? I mean, could you just say based on the number of lives that are destroyed by that act? Well, but if you... But there's an easy refutation of that. Hare Krishna. Okay, I mean, let's say, let's not bring in religious ideas here. And let's just talk about material science. I can, here's the refutation. At the present moment, the earth is undergoing a serious environmental crisis. And perhaps the biggest cause of that crisis is the number of human beings on earth. And in order to feed and clothe and sort of amuse all these human beings, um, you know, there's massive industry. And so obviously, uh, let's say if instead of 8 billion or whatever the latest wonderful number is, what if there were only a billion people on the earth? There'd be a, there, there would be, let's say, like, you know, seven times or eight times less cars on the road, eight times less plane flights, We'd use eight times less petroleum, or maybe we want a hundred times less. I mean, we could really restore the earth to like an Edenic state, like it'd be like Eden again, like the Garden of Eden. So therefore, if you had no other consideration but a desire for environmental health, it would be a really smart thing to do 
to get into major genocide. Genocide is definitely the way to go. <laughs> if there are no other considerations. I mean, there are, I mean, obviously there are other considerations. But again, if you don't want to bring in metaphysical things and just be empirical, let's just be empirical, then, hey, genocide is the way to go. And if we could cull humanity, you know, if we could, let's say, I mean, you know, some people say, nah, just eliminate four or five billion people. And someone may say, no, let's, you know, let's go for a really pristine earth. You know, I, I say seven billion or maybe even seven and a half billion. And let's really make the, the earth like Eden again. Now, if you don't, if you can't bring in metaphysical ideas and someone says, well, why are you doing that? That's a metaphysical value. You'd say, okay, but I just want it. So what would you, you, you have no argument. So frankly, the more people someone killed, the better. It's like, wow, you killed, you killed a thousand people. You're like, you know, you, you get a real like civic citation there. You killed a million people. You'll go down in history. So, so Hume's point is, Hume's point is that if you study an act empirically, whatever the act may be, nothing in the empirical investigation will reveal or demonstrate a value, like the act was good, the act was bad. So let's go back to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson has read Hume. He also knows his Aristotle. And Aristotle pointed, and I'm going to show you how Jefferson takes into account Hume and Aristotle in the first line of the, you know, in, in, in his central argument, Declaration of Independence. Aristotle says that um, if you claim that something is true, someone can, oh my God, I'm leaning back. It makes me look like I weigh 300 pounds. Anyway, <laughs> you know, sannyasi gurus are very concerned about their physical image. So <laughs> I'm really not that heavy, you people out there. It's just, it's, it's just the bad lighting. So anyway, <laughs> please believe me, I'm sincere. So this example I always give, I mean, I, 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 I'd never take the time to think of a better, another example, but let's say you claim that water boils 100 degrees Celsius and someone says, I don't believe it, prove it. You put a pot of water on the stove, you put in a thermometer and at 100 degrees, it boils. And someone says, I don't believe that's pure water. You put something in the water and make it boil at a different temperature. Or I don't believe that's real mercury in the thermometer. So you've got to bring in water testing chemicals. And then someone say, well, I don't believe those are real water testing chemicals. So you got to test those. Or I don't believe those are real mercury testing chemicals. So in other words, no matter what you say is true, someone can push you into an infinite regress. And of course, regress just means going backwards. It's the opposite of progress. And pro, of course, from Sanskrit pro. But anyway, it's an infinite regress of proofs. Aristotle says the way you escape this infinite regress of proofs which is like an army being pushed back, is that you have to make a stand. And the army has to make a stand, which means you must claim sincerely, not just as, a, as an argumentative trick, you have to claim that there is a fact which is self-evident. Because it proves itself, 
because it proves itself. Uh, you don't have to bring in another proof and you can't be pushed into a regressive proof. Interestingly, this is exactly the argument that Lord Chaitanya gave, gave to Sarvabhoma. He gave this explicit argument. He said that the Vedas are the, the term, isn't it Chaitanya Charitamrita? Lord Chaitanya said that the Vedas are Swata Pramanya. They stand as evidence by themselves. In other words, they're self-evident. He used this exact term, self-evident. So that, for example, when we read Bhagavad Gita and we read Krishna's words, we have, you could say, a quality of experience which is self-evidently true. And I gave this example before. You're sleeping and dreaming. You wake up. Upon waking, within a moment, you conclude that your waking consciousness is more real than your dream state. Now, there have been cultures in the world, uh, sometimes somewhat, we're not allowed to say primitive or simple, who believed that actually in dreams you experience a higher reality. In fact, even the Upanishads have a type of, you could say, philosophy of dreams where sometimes, like some people have a dream of Prabhupada. Someone may say that my most intense experience of Prabhupada came in a dream. So there... There are moments where the dream, I mean, you can experience something very vivid. <clears throat> like for example, let's say someone you knew and loved and they come, you know, you see them in a dream and it, but in general, in general, despite those special dream moments that we may have, in general, we accept that when we wake up, we're, we're back in the real world. Although you can't prove that. You can't prove it. I mean, how can you do an empirical test? Because as soon as you wake up, your dream is no longer available to empiric inquiry. So, but everyone, including scientists, agrees that the quality of waking consciousness, there is something self-evident about waking consciousness that establishes as a fact for us that it's more real. Now, by that same logic that convinces every scientist in the world that number one, waking consciousness is more real than dreaming consciousness, by, or that there's a real world outside. For example, it is logically possible. Logically possible just means that you say something which is not self-contradictory just by the meaning of the words. I'll give you an example of something which is logically impossible, uh, a square circle. If you know what the English word square means, and if you know what the English word circle means, then square circle means nothing. It actually has no meaning. So even though you use two English words, when you say a square circle or a round square, you're actually not saying anything. The semantic content, the meaning content of your statement is zero. Because logically, no such thing can exist. And so in that sense, uh, saying that, for example, there is no external world, there's no world outside of our own mind, and all of us are just, as Descartes said, you know, could be the case, although he goes on to refute it, but that we are all just somehow brains and bottles trapped in the laboratory of some evil genius. 
and we're just programmed in a very sophisticated way to think there's a world out there. Now, if someone claims that that's what I believe, that's my religion, that we're brains and bottles, um, there's no logical contradiction. It's not like square circle. There's nothing about the English sentence, we are all brains and bottles imagining an external world. There's nothing in that statement which logically is impossible. It's just that we don't believe it. Why? Because the quality of our experience of the world convinces us that in fact there's a real world outside of our minds. So if that assumption based on a claim of a self-evident fact is the basis of all empirical science, why can't it be the basis of spiritual awareness? As they say, what's fair for the goose is fair for the gander, right? It's an old saying. Okay, valley para o ganso, valley para ganso. It's a boa, no? So, so in other words, when devotees say, or as Lord Chaitanya said, that when we chant Hare Krishna, when we read sacred texts from authorized teachers, that we have an experience which proves self-evidently that it is a superior state of consciousness, we are using exactly the same argument that every scientist does. So therefore, this distinction like, oh, religious people just have faith, whereas scientists, you know, prove things, all of that really shows is the unfortunate state of scholarship where you can get a PhD in science and never take a philosophy course. All that proves is there's a lot of scientists out there who wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. In fact, there's a tension in academia between scientists and philosophers of science. People who get PhDs in philosophy of science uh, have to know all the science and they have to know philosophy. They're like sort of hyper-educated. And uh, there's a tension between them because scientists want the freedom to say things that make no sense. <laughs> For example, like they proved evolution. I mean, we have a fossil record with some anomalies, but we have basically a fossil record. But how did that fossil record get there? Science doesn't know. Why? They weren't there. They weren't watching. <laughs> and so if you say there's a fossil record that indicates a general tendency for older fossils to be more anatomically simple and later uh, fossils be more anatomically complex, that may be the case. That may actually be the case, again, with certain very significant anomalies. However, how they got there, they don't, have, they don't know. They actually, because they weren't there and they didn't observe it. And that's what the controlled experiment is, you know, you do it and you observe it. And they actually don't know. And so really it's more of a philosophical issue and they're not philosophers. And that's why if you watch on YouTube, where else would you watch anything? <laughs> Debates between philosophers of science, I mean, seriously trained philosophers, we have 
you know, doctorates from very prestigious universities, debating scientists about evolution, the scientists often make fools of themselves because it's a philosophical realm, not just an empirical realm, when you ask why or how. So anyway, um, so getting back to Thomas Jefferson, we haven't forgotten you, Tom. We still love you. So, so Thomas Jefferson, knowing all these things, chose his words carefully. And now, now that I've explained that, listen to what he says. We hold these truths to be self-evident. It's the first very interesting point he makes. We hold these truths. In other words, we're not going to argue about it. We're not going to argue with Parliament. We're not going to argue with <coughs> George because it's self-evident. Any reasonable person will see it. And if you don't see it, you just have deficient intuition. It's like if you can't see that there's a real world, that doesn't show that maybe there's not a real world. It just shows that you have some kind of cognitive deficiency. And so that's, that's Jefferson's opening shot. <laughs> He's making a philosophical claim, which the learned people in those days understood. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's very significant, those words. I mean, he knew what he was doing. And then his next statement also shows philosophical sophistication. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all will improve. He said men, but we'll take men to mean people. We'll, you know, do them a favor there. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, endowed by their creator. So now, why did he say created equal? Why didn't he just say all people are equal as modern sort of secular rights theories go? Because he was smarter than modern people. <laughs> and he knew that you can't, that if you want to claim a metaphysical truth, equality, which is empirical nonsense, if you want to claim a metaphysical truth that we're equal, you have to give a metaphysical reason for it. Because only one metaphysical truth can validate another metaphysical truth. So Jefferson, operating in a world in which practically everyone accepted there's a God, even the deists, who were sort of like very reluctant believers, and who said that, um, and there was a popular philosophy back then, the God among intellectuals, that God kind of gets the ball rolling. God sets up the computer and then it just works by itself. So God is not intervening nowadays, but he got the thing going. But in any case, even they accepted there's original, there, there's a divine origin. So we're created equal. Creation is a metaphysical claim. Equality is a metaphysical claim. He avoids Hume's objection. So we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. And then he wants to nail down this metaphysical foundation for the claim. So he repeats it, endowed by the creator, in case you didn't hear that word created, <laughs> endowed by the creator. Because you could say, for example, someone could argue the blind forces of nature created us. And by the way, the English word create from the Sanskrit verb to do or make, create, as in krita, and so on. Anyway, so, it, so he says, we hold that we are cr created equal, 
endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable simply means no one can take them away. Why? Because they come from the highest authority. Just like in America, a state court or government cannot take away rights guaranteed by the federal constitution. That was a whole basis of the civil rights movement to show that state law was taking away rights guaranteed by federal law. That was the basic argument. And the federal government actually responded and enforced federal law over and above unconstitutional state law. That was basically the legal structure of the civil rights movement. And that's the argument Jefferson's giving, that there is a supreme law which uh, takes precedence over human law. Therefore, the rights given by the supreme authority takes precedence over the rights given by lower authority. And of course, think back to the world at that time. Jefferson's writing this round, what's it, 1776 or something? And don't forget that uh, approximately, what would it be, uh, 36, approximately 40 years, 40 years before Jefferson wrote this, a an English, actually a German who became an English citizen, wrote what became the most popular sacred music in Western civilization. The person is George Friedrich Handel, and the song is, you know, Hallelujah, part of his uh, Messiah Oratorio. And it just took Europe by storm and America by storm. Everyone knew that music. Everyone loved that music. Mozart did his own version of it with German words because he just thought, you know, just loved it. Mozart was a big fan. And one of the most dramatic lines in that song are, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In fact, the reason why even to this day, um, if you hear the Messiah performed, I mean, the Hallelujah Chorus performed anywhere in the world, when they start playing it, everyone stands up. That, that's actually all over the world, people. Say, why? Because after Handel originally debuted in, in, in Dublin as a charity, he actually he made a fortune off this music and gave it all to religious charities. But, and it, I mean, Ireland was just like in raptures when they heard it. So when he came back to England, they finally performed it for the king. And when the king heard, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, he stood up out of respect for his king, his Lord. And so when the king stood up, everyone stood up and that became a tradition to this day because the King of England, perhaps the most powerful monarch in the world, the British Empire realized that he was serving under his Lord, his King. And so it was in that cultural context that Jefferson's making his argument. That these are inalienable rights. Jefferson's claiming God, the creator, gave us these rights. No earthly king can take them away. So um, it gets back to the general point that I was making about um, that no empirical science can ever give, logically can never give, 
it's not just they haven't managed to do it yet, but it's a logical impossibility for an empirical science to give a complete description of reality. Because they could say, well, we can explain values or even belief in a creator psychologically or neurologically. You're just wired to believe that. However, the reason that argument will fail, although it's, you know, they try very hard to do that, is because our deepest intuition of self-evident truth is that some things are really right and some things are wrong. Because don't forget, if it were the case that um, we think things are right or wrong for merely neurological or you know evolutionary psychology reasons, in other words, blind evolution, blind evolution happened to rewire some people to believe that let's say massacring innocent people is bad. And people who sort of, you know, had that particular mutation, that particular neurological mutation to believe that massacring innocent people is bad or torturing them is bad, uh, somehow their gene pools did better because people that didn't massacre survived better than people that did. Although that's actually not obvious if you know history. I mean, it's actually not obvious that there would be a clear survival advantage by not massacring people. In fact, you can argue through history that as evil as that is, it does bestow certain advantages. Like you get rid of all your enemies at once and they never come back to bother you. So anyway, but if, that, if, if you take this evolutionary materialism to its logical conclusions, we are left with the most evil horrible conclusions, namely that um, it's actually objectively, if we want to stop being sentimental and delusional, actually there is nothing morally wrong with massacring innocent people. It's just a fantasy that we're wired to believe in. It's like the tooth fairy. So thinking that it's bad to massacre, you know, large numbers or small numbers of completely innocent people, children, is epistemologically now on the same level as the tooth fairy. It's just some childish imagination and people who really understand science know it's not bad. I mean, maybe, I mean, don't forget that one of the biggest fans of Darwin was Hitler. Hitler was a big Darwin fan. In fact, Hitler believed he was advancing science and that he was carrying out a beautiful Darwinian project by eliminating, you know, the less fit because he thought the Teutonic German race, as he envisioned it, and to which he actually didn't belong because he had really dark hair. But, you know, he thought that they're, you know, they're inferior races, so let's, you know, get rid of the Jews, get rid of the gypsies, get rid of, you know, all kinds of, I mean, God knows who else he would have eliminated had he prevailed. And so he thought this is a pure Darwinian project. And if there is no metaphysical reality, uh, what would you say to Hitler? Because if there's no metaphysical reality, all you can say to Hitler is, uh, I don't like your project. I can't say that it's wrong or immoral because there is no such thing. Moral and immoral are metaphysical terms. 
They're not empirical terms. You can't empirically prove that something is moral or immoral. Those are values. Values are metaphysical. So if you really want to live in a purely empirical world, you have absolutely nothing to say to Hitler. You can't say they did something wrong. He would just say that's unscientific gibberish. You know, be scientific. Do you have something scientific to say to me? And he could say, come on, it's environmentally great. And <laughs> So my point is this. Just as we know at the deepest level, just as we know at the deepest level that, that there's really a world or that we really exist, it's like Descartes. He said that the basis of all other certainty is the certainty that I exist, that I, as a conscious being. So just as certain things, even, uh, what was his name, uh, William James, one of the first great American psychologists. It's interesting because he explored everything, investigated everything, but then he said, there are certain deep structures in the human mind with which I will not tamper. It's like, because you're just going to unravel and lose yourself in madness. So he said, there are certain very deep structures of consciousness, like, don't open that box. And so um, we know that certain things are right or wrong. If we see some horrible injustice, some horrible evil, something done to an innocent person, whatever, we know at the, in, in the core of our being, that that is wrong. Or you love someone, you love a child, when you love a lover, I mean, people know in, in the core of their being that, that, that this is real, or that something is right and something is wrong. And therefore, uh, a theory which denies what we know to be most real, because the world may or may not be exactly as we perceive it. For example, we see the sky is blue, you know, leaves are green. And of course, there's these old philosophical questions, you know, raised by intellectuals that obviously have much too much time on their hands. But like, you know, where is color? Is color in the eye? Is color in the object? Is it between the eye and the object? You can go on and on. So even our, it's, it's like scientists, you know, because they love to blow our minds. And it's, um, they'll say like, oh, you think that's a solid table? But actually, it's just all these atomic particles that are really, you know, very far apart. And it's not really solid. That's just an illusion. Um, actually, it's not an illusion. The table really is solid. Because um, it's just like imagine a fan going around so fast that you just see a continuous object. So there is a force field here. However far apart the atomic particles, subatomic particles are, there is a solid force field. And so there is a sense in which, and there is a sense in which the sky is really blue. Just to, because uh, it's, anyway, I'll just, I don't want, very quickly, this, it, the creation is teleological. The Greek word telos means object or, or, or purpose. And so the universe is teleological in the sense it's created with a purpose by God. And therefore, it's, it's like if you, let's say you look at a great painting in a museum, and in that painting, the sky is blue. Uh, the point is, the painter, the artist, the creator of that work wants you to see the sky as blue. And therefore, who really understands that paint, that painting? Is it a great art historian or a chemist that knows about paint? 
<laughs> and so the sky was created to be seen as blue by the artist who made it. But apart from all those discussions, um, you know, we may doubt, like, are we really seeing the world as it is? Is it really exactly as we see it? As we know, you know, witnesses give different accounts of the same event. However, there's a sense in which our deep understanding that certain things are right or wrong, that let's say protecting a child is right and harming a child is wrong, it goes so deep into the core of our being in a sense we know it more with greater certainty than we know that the sky is blue. Therefore, if self-evident facts are valid, which they must be to even do empirical science, then we know by the same method that certain things are right and wrong. And since empirical science by its own self-description, by its own ground rules, uh, cannot talk about metaphysical things, no empirical science can ever give a complete description of reality. It's very simple, actually. Therefore, everyone in the world should join the Hare Krishna movement. Okay. I skipped a few logical steps. But we'll fill those in later, after you've been in the movement five years. So, so any questions about these points? So does that mean the secular humanists who are putting forth an idea that we can really be good and just and moral without reference to one of these horrible, you know, war-causing, you know, women-hating religions. Are they just running on the steam of previous piety, or do they have no foundation in logic at all? I would say, first of all, that idea of religion is not precise. Here's a simple question, like, like these cliches in our culture, like religions have caused more wars than anyone else. The simple question is, if, let's say, all you knew about earthly religion was the religions of Asia, would you say that religion is the main cause of war? If all you knew about religion was the religions of the classical world, the Greco-Roman world, would you say religion was the main cause of war? You wouldn't, because they didn't have religious wars. In the Greco-Roman world, they fought for the, you know, the good old-fashioned reasons. Greed, lust for power, <laughs> you know, more wholesome motivations. Not, I mean, the Romans, the Romans who kind of never met a war they didn't like. <laughs> Romans are very interesting people. I mean, if you look at, if you go back early, even to the Roman Republic, their own self-understanding, the Romans believed that they were begotten in a she-wolf by the god of war. And these were tough guys. Begotten by a she-wolf in the god of, by the god of war in a she-wolf. So they were, um, anyway, they, the Romans weren't fighting wars to bring Jupiter to the world. <laughs> like, you know, we have to fight because you're not worshiping Jupiter. You're worshiping somebody else. You're worshiping Zeus. Zeus is a false god. You have to worship Jupiter. <clears throat> not only did the Romans not fight wars like that, 
they had exactly the opposite view. The, the Romans actually were very enthusiastic about religious syncretism, which was that everyone should respect other religions and see that Zeus, for example, and Jupiter or Yahweh are ultimately, I mean, if you had a monotheistic view of Jupiter and Zeus rather than sort of, a, I mean, the philosophers in the, in the, the pagan philosophers did tend toward monotheism because actually monotheism is a logical outcome of philosophy. It was the unphilosophical sort of common people who believed in sort of this polytheism where there's just all these gods and they're kind of adolescent and, you know, <laughs> immature. <laughs> and above all these gods, there's, there's the ultimate divine source, which is actually not one of the gods. That's kind of like unphilosophical polytheism. But there were philosophers, and there were very good philosophers, probably the greatest philosophers in history in Greece and Rome, and there was a philosophical monotheism, which uh, was something more that we would recognize. Actually, I think philosophical monotheism was even better than what I call tribal monotheism. Because if you look at the Middle East, you have monotheists, but they believe that only they are worshiping God. And everybody else worshiping a false god or it's the devil or some other really highbrow conception. And so therefore you basically have to kill other people because they're worshiping a false god. And so it's tribal monotheism. Whereas in the Greco-Roman world, and this includes some uh, Jewish philosophers who were philosophical monotheists, uh, where there's only one god, but that just as it says in the Rig Veda, that one God is called by different names or invoked by different names in different cultures. So is, the, is really the, the philosophical, the, not, the philosophical monotheism, which was truly admirable, I think much more than tribal monotheism. And in a sense, it's the tribal monotheism that led to the wars. I don't think you have so many polytheistic wars like or or so so even alexander the great had his one world project if you know about alexander the great he really his big inspiration well you know apart from just beating up everyone he met <laughs> and uh, you know conquering them of course if you surrendered he wouldn't beat you up he would you know shake hands no hard feelings we now control you so but alexander had this enthusiasm to unite the world and both Alexander and the Romans, who supplanted the Greeks as, the, as you know, the great power in that part of the world, were religious syncretists. They didn't want religious fanaticism, especially the Romans. Actually, and Alexander, because if you look at, I mean, Alexander, sorry for all this history, but it's kind of interesting. Alexander, of course, as we know, was a, um, oh my God, you know, the, the country came from. No, no, no. It's 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 a Greek. Um, I can't believe that history. You know, it's a country today. Cyprus. No, 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 no. It's um, here. One second. I'll I'll tell you in a second. Um, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, it's a word. I know. I just somehow or other, it's just kind of like um, Macedonian. Of course, my God, that was not age related. It's just that I had all these ideas <laughs> in my head. 
So, I mean, he was part of the Greek world roughly, but it was, he was a Macedonian. The Greeks were very much into their city-states. Alexander was more in his thinking and his approach was actually more like a Roman in the sense that he thought of large-scale organization and large-scale political structures, which the Greek city-states didn't. It's like the Athenians, I mean, they had, you know, city leagues and everything, but they, but Alexander and the Romans thought in very large-scale political structures. And because they thought in terms of large-scale political structures, um, they really wanted people to respect each other's religions. Because you can't build large-scale empires and societies if, you know, stupid people are killing each other over religious fanaticism. <laughs> and that's why Tacitus, the great Roman historian, roughly at the time of Jesus, maybe, you know, just uh, slightly after Jesus, but roughly the same period, um, who was a Roman senator and considered one of the great historians in history, um, in the last chapter of his, of his great histories, he just really kind of goes on a rampage and he says that if these fanatical Middle Eastern religions spread in the Roman, you know, in our Roman civilization, it's going to ruin everything. And he turned out to be right. Because when one particular Middle Eastern religion, uh, under the uh, guardianship of uh, Constantine the Emperor, became the religion of the Roman Empire, one of the first things they did was to abolish religious freedom. Of course, they had been persecuted also, so they kind of, so they said, well, it's better to persecute than to be persecuted. <laughs> anyway, but generally there was this idea of religious syncretism. And so therefore, if you look at the Greco-Roman world, you would not say that religion is the cause of wars. If you looked at the history of South Asia, of India, you would not say it. Because actually, in the Indo-European world, there was religious freedom. And even if you, so, so again, that sort of, I mean, people, there's all kinds of cliches going around in our age, which often have no discernible thinking behind them. Another one, another example of a very common phrase or term, which you think about is irrational, is blind faith. You've all heard that, right? Blind faith. Now, it is a log it is an irrefutable principle, logical principle, that it is if if your goal is to get things right, it is equally dangerous to believe something that's not true or to disbelieve something that is true. For example, imagine a person who doesn't believe there's a real world out there, or who thinks that all his neighbors are actually invaders from the X, Y, three sector of the galaxy who are trying to steal his soul and, you know, his neighbors. And so he, or that that's believing something that's not true. Or let's say someone has a terminal illness which can be cured but doesn't believe in modern medicine. I actually know a number of people who unfortunately had two religions. One of them was Krishna consciousness. The other one was natural medicine. And they died of curable diseases because of this religious commitment to natural medicine. So if you don't believe something that is true, like let's say, for example, you're in a burning building 
and you're going to die and, and a fireman comes to save you and you say, I don't think you're a fireman. I think you're actually one of those invaders from you know, there's some other part of the galaxy. And so by not believing what is true, you die. I mean, I mean imagine if you go to school, you just don't, like, like you learn as a child, two and two or four. I don't believe it. <laughs> you know, Ankara is the capital of Turkey. I don't believe it. So the point I'm making is, it is no more, it is no more dangerous to believe what's not true than to believe what is true or, or to disbelieve what is true. And so therefore, if our age, if our historical age was balanced and fair, there would be two common expressions, blind faith, blind doubt. But in fact, there is no common expression, blind doubt. Because especially in, I would say, pseudo-intellectual circles or academic circles, which often are kind of synonymous, um, if you believe in God or the soul that is not intellectually respectable, even if you have good reasons to do so, and if you're skeptical or agnostic, that is intellectually respectable without good reason. You know, you don't have to give good reasons. If you say, I don't believe all that stuff, that is intellectually respectable, even if you don't give any good reasons. And that's called bigotry. I'll give you another example of this bigotry. In America, in public universities, it's actually illegal to preach religion. You can't stand up in a let's say in a, in a philosophy class at the University of Texas or whatever and start preaching. Let's say, to give an example that gets that we can be detached from, let's say you, st you stand up in a, in, a, in a class at the University of Texas and say, Zeus is the god of rain. Hail Zeus. <laughs> you know, once people figure out it's not a joke, you really mean it, you're terminated and perhaps recommended for psychiatric treatment. <laughs> so on the other hand, you can stand up in that same class and say Zeus is not the god of rain. There, we know that there is no Zeus. It's just that, you know, the ancient Greeks, they saw rain and thunder and lightning and they were afraid of it and so they wanted to feel they had some way to protect themselves. So they imagined and projected a god of rain and thunder, and then tried to propitiate it by sacrifices, to which I say, how the hell do you know? There's nothing about, there is nothing about a PhD program in classical studies or Greek religion, which tells you, gives you any clue as to whether Zeus exists or not. Now, when you make a negative claim to make a negative or a positive claim about the same subject puts you equally in the same domain of, well, okay, I'll explain, I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a math teacher and you say two and two are four. Uh, or let's say you say two and two are not five. They both require math knowledge. If you say two and two are not five, or two and two are four, those are both math claims. 
If you say that the word bad is spelled B-A-D, if you say the word bad is not spelled B-A-D-D, those are equally spelling claims. If you say Zeus is the god of rain or Zeus is not the god of rain, those are equally religious claims. If you say Zeus is not the god of rain, thunder, and lightning, you are claiming to have privileged information about divine things. So denying God is as much a religious claim as affirming God or the soul. So what's interesting is in public universities and private ones, you can preach religion as long as you do so negatively. You can preach religion negatively in public universities, but you cannot do so positively, which only goes to show how philosophically clueless modern people are. So anyway, as you can see, when we start to get into all these things, you can see that in fact, we live in a somewhat irrational world. You understand all that, right? <laughs> yes. I had a question. I guess, what's the best way? Actually, I agree with you. Like most people, I don't know, it's just difficult if someone doesn't have a, a logical, a good logical foundation. I mean, some people, a lot, well, okay. I know people that watch Fox News and think this is the best. So I don't know. Well, it is. Like, that makes me think it's it, the best. It, it, yeah. yeah. It's just like, and both are, of course, as we know, fair and unbiased. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess what's the best advice that you have for bringing Krishna consciousness to someone that doesn't have a great logical foundation? Cookies? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if someone is capable of having a rational discussion, and there is still sort of, that's kind of an endangered species in this country, people <laughs> capable of rational conversations, then um, have a rational conversation. If someone's not, you know, Chanarai Krishna. It's like Lord Chaitanya. In his own Sankirtan movement, he had very learned discussions with learned people, and, you know, for a lot of the mass of people, he just had nice musical events, you know, chanting, dancing. <laughs> But we really do need to attract intelligent people if this movement is going to succeed as a Brahminical movement. Yes, you had a question, I think? Yes, uh, initially you mentioned that empirical knowledge cannot explain the whole reality because it's not able to, to say anything about the spirituality. Or the metaphysical. But then later on you mentioned that uh, we cannot claim anything spiritual and ask other people to do it unless you have an empirical or a logical explanation for it. I did? So I, did I, say, I don't think I said that. Maybe my misunderstanding. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a difference between saying that something is reasonable and saying that something is empirical. I mean, by definition, to say prove God, if someone says prove God in an empirical sense, they're being completely irrational. I'll explain why. The, 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 the request itself is irrational for the following reason. The heart of the scientific method is the controlled experiment. Mm 
right? And therefore, a priori, as a logical fact, not merely, you know, empirical fact, as a logical fact, uh, you can only perform an empirical experiment on something that you can control. But you, because if, I mean, it's a linguistic truth, you cannot perform a controlled experiment on things you can't control. And what that means is that the empirical method only works for things you can control. And therefore, they come to this absurd conclusion that the only thing that exists in the world is things we can control. I mean, to give you an example of how absurd this is, logically absurd, imagine someone who begins with the assumption that the only reliable scientific instrument ever invented is the thermometer. Now, that's ridiculous, but let's say someone believes that. He says, I'll prove it. I took my thermometer out into the world, and the only thing that was out there is temperature. <laughs> I mean, that is, is that a Saturday Night Live skit? Or? <laughs> so, so you begin with the assumption, by the way, with the self-contradictory assumption that the only real things in the world are things that can be empirically detected, which means that nothing can exist unless we can control it. Now, to start out with the assumption that nothing can exist unless we can control it is obviously a psychological problem rather than a serious philosophical statement. In fact, if you say that the only things which we can know for certain are things we empirically verify, then this, that statement cannot be true because you cannot empirically verify that only things that are empirically verified are true. That statement itself cannot be empirically verified. <laughs> and even if you, so it's, it's what, you know, philosophers would call self-referentially self contradictory and coherent. And therefore, this, it, it's like, if it's true that only things you empirically verify are real, then it's not true. If that statement is true, then the statement is not true. And if a statement is true and not true, then it's just an absurdity. It's nothing. Because if you tried to prove it, it would be circular reasoning. I mean, it, it's, it would be begging the question. You can't, so the statement itself is empirically not verifiable. And so if you say nothing is real unless I can control it, and I can prove that because the only thing, because I go out and I control things, I didn't, I couldn't, subject to a controlled experiment, things I couldn't control. It's like, it's just gibberish. It's just gibberish. So let's talk about the process of designing experiments. First of all, you cannot search for something unless you know something about it. If I say, like I, I said the other day, you know, I, I want you to find something that I call a quiggle on and you know, if you find it, I'll give you a million dollars and you say, well, tell me something about it. Nope. Something. Is it a physical thing? Is it an idea? Is it a linguistic thing? Is it, I won't tell you anything. Logically, you cannot search for something about which you know nothing or about which you don't, 
you suspect nothing. In other words, you may not know, but you suspect. I think there's something out there like that. And if it is out there, this is how we would detect it, right? So therefore, let's say you're using a very standard scientific method where like brown dwarfs, they didn't know if there were brown dwarfs, which as I explained were wannabe stars that didn't make it. You know, their engines didn't heat up enough. They didn't reach the point of like sort of, uh, you know, perpetual combustion. So therefore they just kind of fizzled out as brown dwarfs, stars that didn't make it. Now, the, the astronomer said, if there are such things out there, this is probably how we would detect them. So they designed an experiment based on what they thought they knew about it. Now, let's say you're searching for God. If you're searching for God, you have to rationally design an experiment. If you're looking for God in the conventional sense, you know, the triple O God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, triple threat, you know. <laughs> so if you're looking for God in the conventional sense, you obviously would rule out instantly a controlled experiment because you cannot, by definition, you cannot control an omnipotent being. <laughs> Plus God's omniscient, so he'd see you coming, you know, light, light years away. And so the idea of a controlled experiment to detect something infinitely greater than you is just pure stupidity. So then the next question would be, how would you detect? How would you detect an infinitely superior being? Logic would tell us that in the real world, and analogizing from the real world of our experience, the way you learn about superior beings like your boss or someone that has greater political power than you is that you have to please them and gain their favor. In the real world, it's like, let's say you're a journalist, you want to interview some powerful person, you have to gain the favor of that person. So what it turns out is that bhakti yoga is a scientifically designed experiment to detect an infinitely superior being. It is a thoroughly rational approach to find out if there's really such a being because it's based on the only possible way to gain access to someone you cannot control because they are significantly superior to you. So in that sense, bhakti yoga is a spiritual science, a non-sectarian spiritual science. Or, as they say, elementary, Dr. Watson. <laughs> Yes. I'm just going to uh, change um, my phone. I'm having... Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to explain what's in my mind, but correct me. Let's say I have no idea of Krishna consciousness, and I'm going to say the empirical experiment or logical experiment, I understand it with my brain or logic, and the spiritual things, I understand it with my soul. Uh, not really. I know that's wrong, but then you are you are you are explaining about something different, which is reasonable or rationality. How can I apparently rationality or reason, 
reason is something which works on both sides, empirical and at the same time spiritual. Yes, yes. So how, how do I detect with what aspect of my being I'm detecting the reason? Okay, first of all, Krishna calls what we're doing, Krishna consciously calls it buddhi yoga, the spiritual path of rationality, of reason. That's what Krishna calls this. How do you detect it? I mean, how do you know that I'm talking to you right now? How do you know that you exist? How do you know that anything? It gets down to the point that there are certain facts. There are certain facts in the world, like the fact of your existence, the fact of my existence, the fact that we are speaking a common language. Because logically, although not practically, it's possible that although we're both speaking English, that we both have a completely a set of different meanings for every word we're saying. So you think you're talking about spiritual philosophy, and I think we're talking about the best way to grow a rose garden, or, or we're talking about you know the ancient history of Polynesia or something. But in fact, we know, and we are confident that we know, that we're speaking the same language and, you know, within reasonable limits, we accept the same meanings for the words, we accept the same grammar, the same syntax, which means word order. Like if I say, I see him, everyone understands it. Now, let's say someone who's not really good at English says him, or let's say him see I. You know, you could say, well, maybe that's a very crude way to say that he sees me, him see I. So, so syntax is important, especially, in, I won't go into the whole thing of linguistics of how inflected languages depend less on syntax. But anyway, so in English, word order is very important. So we're assuming that in terms of syntax, semantics, word meanings, everything that we're communicating. So there's so many things that we just know to be true. Therefore, it must be the case that we exist in such a way that we are capable of knowing things. It must simply be a feature of human consciousness that we have the power to know things. And then the question would be not how we know because we have the power to know many things. The question is under what circumstances are we justified in saying that we know something spiritual or metaphysical? Just like in science, under what circumstances can we say with, can we legitimately say that we know something about medicine, about, you know, any other scientific field? And so we get back to the quality of the experience. There is vast agreement among human beings. In fact, such widespread agreement that it, it, it appears to be just the nature of human awareness. For example, there is very widespread agreement that there's a real world outside our minds. One could even, for example, logically, one could even imagine that uh, I'm the only conscious being and everyone else is just a figment of, it just exists within my mind. That, in, in fact, solipsism is a kind of a loony philosophical position, but nonetheless, which states that the only thing you actually know with certainty is the content of your own mind. You don't know there's another, there's a world out there. You don't know other people exist. So everything you think you know is just the contents of your own mind. Now, uh, very few people have 
ever taken that seriously. The ones that did probably ended up institutionalized. But it's just not a position that anyone really believes. And so there are all kinds of facts about the world about which almost everyone agrees. For example, if you can't tell the difference between red and yellow light, considered to be a speech, a, a, a visual uh, impediment. This, you know, like when you get a, it's not considered that, well, maybe actually red and yellow are the same color, but everyone on earth is an illusion except one lucky person that figured out that they're the same color. No. So they're, <laughs> or, you know, we feel love, we feel affection, we feel duty. We feel, for example, for example, I have, you know, there are many people in the world who depend on me in some way or other, and, and I feel that I have a moral obligation to them. And I'm certain that that moral obligation actually exists. It's a real fact in the world. For example, parents feel that they have a duty to their children, and they feel that duty is not just, not merely an emotion. It's not merely an emotion. It's a real objective moral duty. And we experience it. Parents experience that their duty to their children, not as simply some emotion like, I don't know, I'm in a funny mood today. I feel like protecting my children. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not just some emotion or mood. It is a powerful, objective, moral duty so that you know that if you do not take care of your children to the best of your ability, you have actually committed a great offense. You have done something morally reprehensible and there will be ultimately consequences. And so there are all kinds of things, physical, metaphysical, that we know to be real. So for example, say in America or any other country, almost everyone would agree that parents have a real duty to their children. It's not just their imagination. It's not just a little fantasy, a little tooth fairy story uh, created by blind evolution. There is really an objective duty. Or husband and wife, or friends, that people have objective, real obligations to each other. And it's not the tooth fairy. It's real. It's objective. And so if you think of all the things that almost everyone agrees that we really know, and so ultimately, there is the most uh, striking fact of all, and that is everything that exists comes from a single supreme source that we can call, to use a Sanskrit word, Brahman. We can say God, we can say absolute truth, I mean, you know, choose your own word. But the idea that ultimately there is a single fact which explains all other facts, which is the source of all other facts. It's a powerful realization which we are capable uh, of having. And when people have this realization, it is self-evidently true. Not only is it self-evidently true, it's actually more true than everything else. Because every other truth rests on that truth. You realize that ultimately, why is it that I have an objective obligation to my children? Why is it that I should not harm innocent people and so on and so forth? Because uh, that moral obligation exists within an infinite source of goodness and morality, which is the absolute truth.
And, and so the experience of God, the experience of Krishna, not only do we experience it as real, but it is actually the most real thing in the world. Yes. Okay, but I'm kind of going back to your original point. Sure, go ahead. What keeps us from being animals is sort of the beautiful struggle, right? Trying to figure out. Oh, good, to, good. Right? Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So then, then we start kind of getting into this, you're human when you don't know, right? And oh, good. Are oh. we there in this place of like dogma versus... Thank you. Okay. You just really helped me because... <laughs> I started out with this idea, and then I just we went around the Mayberry bush, round <laughs> <laughs> and around. The rabbit chased the weasel. <laughs> anyway, so yes, so when you okay, so take our animal existence. Like we're hungry, we feel hunger. It's a very unpleasant feeling. And we have instincts that just drive us get food. We just know animals know that. They don't have to philosophize about it. They don't have to study it scientifically. <laughs> they feel some a sensation, which we can call hunger, and they just instinctively go to food, whatever that means for a particular animal. Same thing for thirst, same thing for, you know, like there's danger. Animals just instinctively know, you know, what to do about danger, at least the best option. It may not work. It's either run, you know, fight, you know, what do they call it, fight or flight, mm -hmm. and so on. So as human beings, there is a sense in which we are animals. There is a sense in which we have all, you know, a lot of these instincts and so on. And yet we have this unique gift that we can think. And, and, and I mean, we can ask questions, which to the best of our knowledge, animals don't ask, like, well, who am I? I mean, what, I mean... A certain advanced animals seem to have a sense of self, like 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 perhaps elephants or dogs, and they seem to have a sense of self. But you know, you know, the extent to which they can think about that is you know, it's it's difficult to say. But we can start thinking about like 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 what is right, what is wrong, and abstract thinking, like the principle of justice. And so you start with an ab, you, know, you can come to the point where you have an abstract principle of justice, and you say, well. What justice? You mean in this case or that case or this person? Or that? No, the principle, the abstract idea of justice. And then you apply it. Okay, I have, I have an abstract idea of justice, so in a particular situation, I'm bringing to that situation certain general principles. And, and so that ability to, to master general principles, abstract thinking, and, and, and to search for virtue for its own sake, or to value virtue for its own sake, like I'd rather give my life than, like let's, let's say a person is given a choice, either you murder all these innocent people or you will be executed. Which sometimes if you study history, there's a lot of really sick people in history that you know, might conquer some country and then give someone a choice. Either you kill all your children or, or you'll be killed. You know, really sick stuff like that. And so many, if not most people would just say, no, I'd rather die. And so it's, you know, when you get into all kinds of conceptions of morality, of virtue, of, of just abstract thinking and so on, and ultimately asking questions like, where does it all come from? I and mean, we have no evidence that elephants stay up at night thinking, where does it all come from? <laughs> Even though they, they can paint pictures and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so that ability to inquire. Like, for example, uh, iconoclasm, I would say, 
the point I made when I taught at the University of Florida, iconoclasm, which means not believing in visible images of God, uh, actually is one of the causes of the environmental problems we have and also is a symptom of a pre-philosophical approach to life. I'll explain what I mean by that. First of all, the Ten Commandments. When I was in Israel last year, or two years ago, actually, I went over the Ten Commandments with you know native Hebrew speakers who said, and what it turned out is Ten Commandments actually say you shouldn't make graven images of demigods. There's not actually an injunction against graven means of stone. Uh, there's actually no injunction against making images of God. So the demi but anyway, apart from that, why was there, there, there this iconoclasm like, you know, you can't make a deity, you can't make an idol. Like idols should just be for like music contests. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the basic idea was, you know, God is the most holy and matter is just vulgar and profane. So don't bring these two together. And of course, the conception of matter as sort of vulgar and profane is why we have an environmental problem because sure, you can trash the material world, it's just the material world. Whereas if you look at more philosophical societies, why do I say that? Because we're in the material world. You know, you touch things, you smell things, you taste things, we're surrounded by matter, our bodies are material. But what happens when you take a step back and say, well, wait a second, and you ask this question, which is a philosophical question, what is matter? For example, if I say, like, take this microphone, I say, what is matter? You say, it's a microphone, you fool. That's not what I mean. I don't mean, like, what kind of matter is this, but what is matter itself? And we can use Aristotle's word, uh, the substance. And think of what the word substance means. It means substance, that which stands beneath the surface. Because as we know, on the surface, this is a microphone. On the surface, that's a computer. But what's beneath the surface? What is the energy itself beneath the surface? Substance. And that's a philosophical question. And if, so how did the Greeks answer that question? I mean, or, or, or the Romans? I mean, the different, ultimately, uh, people like Plotinus, and or, or file, you know, they came to these ideas of beta, beta, they came to emanation theory, the idea that what is matter, it's something that emanates from the divine. But you're never going to get to that point of what is matter in, in, until you think about it philosophically. And if you conclude that matter, Hare Krishna, hope you had a good time. So if you come to the conclusion that matter emanates from the divine, then, well, maybe it's not just bad. Maybe it's not just icky. You know, maybe, maybe energy has, uh, matter has some relationship with God. And even though we use matter in sometimes bad ways or greedy or lusty ways, but is the energy itself bad? And if the energy itself is really God's energy, if you have an absolute truth, then how could God's energy be bad? Even if we use it in bad ways, how could God's energy itself be bad? And if God's energy itself is just a neutral energy that can be used for good or evil, then God perhaps can appear in his own energy for good purposes because God can use matter in good ways because it's his energy. 
So when you start thinking philosophically about matter, then it opens up a whole new realm of possibilities in terms of God's appearances in this world. And in fact, interestingly, I, I, I was uh, on Utah, I was watching this course on Old Testament history given by this uh, very good scholar, this uh, a lady from Yale. And she was saying that technically the Old Testament doesn't say that the creation is ex nihilo, from nothing. And that actually, if you literally read the Hebrew, it can easily indicate that there was just this pre-existing uh, stuff and God made it into a world. So even the idea that God created the world from nothing is just is, is based on a somewhat non-literal reading of the Hebrew Bible. So another thing is that even if you study Old Testament history or the history of, of the people that followed the Old Testament, uh, they often did worship deities. For example, Solomon built the first temple. So if you study the whole history of the temple until it was destroyed by the Babylonians because the Jewish king didn't follow the advice of Jeremiah and stop, you know, challenging the Babylonians until they finally, that's it. So, but if you study the whole history of the temple, I think most of the time, practically, they were, they had deities in the temple. And so as they say, because, they, they, because, you know, they became an agricultural people and agricultural people recognize demigods. Demigods are very important uh, for successful agriculture and so on. And so, as I say, the winners write the history. So basically, a, it's clear that within Jewish civilization, there were people that wanted to worship deities, and there were people that didn't. And the people that didn't kind of won, and they wrote the history. Like, for example, if you look at um, Solomon, you know, the wise King Solomon, he had many wives, and one of them was, or at least one of them, was not Jewish. And she worshiped her little deities. So what did Solomon do? Did he like break all her little deities into a million pieces? Did he exile her? Did he execute her? No. On the Temple Mount, on the, he actually built her a little shrine for her deities. This is in the Old Testament. Now what's interesting here is that you have Solomon taking sort of a much more sophisticated liberal view about religious diversity. This is King Solomon, as in the Solomon. He builds her a little shrine, like in India. Here, you can put your little deities here and, you know, go ring your bell or do whatever you do. <laughs> and so, of course, then you get other... Because in Judaism, there are many... There, Judaism has been many things at many different times, although obviously it's one religion. It's not just different religions, but basically a certain group within Judaism prevailed and they wrote the histories and they, you know, decided what was right and what was wrong. But we know that throughout ancient Jewish history, there was a strong tendency among many of them to worship deities. And Solomon actually respected that with his non-Jewish wife and built her a shrine. So this is a much more liberal, much more tolerant view then you get, for example, in the Hanukkah story, where, where uh, there's a famous story, every Jewish child learns a story, where uh, the Greek king Antiochus, who was just, you know, coming from, is basically divided up Alexander's empire when he died. And so Antiochus got one 
part of the empire. And uh, he called this Jewish mother and all her children, she had like nine kids or something like that, I forget the number exactly, and asked all of them to bow down to the king. And so they wouldn't. So one by one in front of the mother, he killed all these kids because they wouldn't bow down to the king. And then it came down to the last little boy, this, this youngest child. And so the king, trying to spare his life, threw a like a valuable jeweled ring down the floor and said, pick it up, because to pick it up, he would have to bow down. He wouldn't pick it up and he was killed. Now, what's interesting about this story is that in the Old Testament, earlier, people actually do bow down to each other. For example, when Abraham uh, lost his, his, his wife, Sarah, in those days, they would, you know, like a respectable way to bury someone was in a cave. And just like Jesus was buried in a cave. And so Abraham asked a wealthy person who had an extra cave, you know, could I use this for Sarah? And the man agreed. <laughs> And so Abraham bowed down to him. He offered obeisances, touched his head on the ground. It was just some guy who gave him a cave. Or for example, when David decided that he wanted to build a great temple to the Lord, and of course he wasn't allowed to build it because of his sin with Bathsheba. And so it, it went to his son, but still he was looking for the land and he found this really nice, you know, it, Jerusalem is called the city of David. It's called the city of David because he actually founded the city of Jerusalem. And so he found this really nice high land that he wanted to purchase to build the temple, which his son eventually built, which is actually the Temple Mount. So he went there and it belonged to some guy, to some, you know, simple worker, who, I think it was a threshing operation or something. And so this simple citizen, when he saw the great King David coming to his home, he was so excited and honored that he bowed down, touched his head to the ground. So it's all over the place, bowing down. And yet you get this Hanukkah story, which is obviously because, you know, it's kind of like Jewish cultural resistance to Greek culture. And by the way, Greek back then was English. Greek was English and Greek culture was like American culture. And so, um, but it goes all over the place in terms like never bow down to anyone. Nope, it's in the Bible. People bow down all the time. It's just that at a certain historical period that, you know, they're, they're suddenly saying you don't bow down. Or, or, you know, how do you deal with people that have little deities? You know, they're demons, they're horrible, they're this or that. Solomon builds a little shrine for them. And you have Jews, Jewish priests in the temple of Solomon, worshiping deities, actually, probably for more time than they didn't. There's even one famous story, I forget the name of the king, but he inherited the throne and he saw they were worshiping all these idols or deities in the temple. And then, and then he heard from the sages who said, no, your forefathers forbid this. And he was like lamenting and tearing his hair and ripping his cloth. And then he got all the deities out of the temple, cleansed the temple. But then the next generation, they go back to the deities. <laughs> so anyway, all I mean to say is that um, Religion is a much more complex thing. And so the idea of like religions cause all the wars, I mean, the first really great period of secular warfare is of course the 20th century. And it's also, you know, it, 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 these are the worst wars in history. For one thing, because they're the first truly industrial wars. So you could kill people, you know, with industrial technology, which is what happened. But they're secular wars. And the Nazis weren't religious, the communists were atheists. I mean, Stalin slaughtered, you know, inconceivable numbers of people, like, you know, tens of millions of innocent people 
And he was an atheist. So, yeah, real history is a little more complex. Was that your question? I mean, oh, you, you touched on some of the assumptions. That's good. Yeah, we live in an age of cliches rather than an age of thinking or serious knowledge of history. So, and maybe we'll stop here. Thank you all very much. Thank you. May the force be with you. <laughs> 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 Hare Krishna. <laughs>